Hello, welcome back to Diabetics Doing Things. Before we get into this special episode of Diabetics Doing Things, where we are amplifying Palestinian voices, I wanted to issue a content warning for discussion of trauma, death, displacement, and loss. This is a very important episode, but it's not one to listen to unless you're ready to process serious information. Thank you. Links to humanitarian efforts to aid the people in Palestine can be found in the show notes. Welcome back, friends, to Diabetics Doing Things. This is Eritrea Musa. We're opening this episode up in a really different way. We've never done this before. Coming back onto the podcast is Noral Ramaki, who's here with me today, a Palestinian person, a person living with diabetes, who I love very much. This is going to be a really hard episode and a hard intro for us, guys. I don't want to overspeak, but this last week has been absolutely horrific for people living in Gaza and living in Palestine, and especially for those who are living with diabetes and any other type of disability. And so we're here to open up the episode. Nora, I'm going to hand it to you. Thank you, Eritrea. Um, yeah, I just want to say thank you and thank you, Rob, and for giving Palestinians a voice, for giving us a platform to uh, speak on what's been going on. There's been a lot of um, not accurate information going around. And um, I think I also speak from a place of privilege as hard and devastating and horrific as it's been for me and everybody living in diaspora. It's, I also recognize that I am considered quote unquote, one of the lucky ones and the privileged ones. And I say quote unquote, because I didn't, we didn't choose to leave. Uh, we were forcibly displaced. Um, my family was um, forcibly displaced twice, not once uh, during the 48 war. And then during, again, during the 67 war. Um, and to consider myself lucky that I am safe and not in imminent harm in itself is a huge struggle. Survival guilt is really real. And yeah, I just watching, watching your friends and your people and not, it's not just my people, they're straight up innocent people from behind a screen, just losing their lives and receiving messages every morning with your friends saying goodbye. I don't know. I don't know how to process this kind of pain and hurt and I keep trying to think diabetes wise but then I keep going back to diabetes is not a priority right now it is they are trying to stay alive I received a message from one of my friends who's a psychologist in the U.S. today asking me if there's any way that they can support the people in Gaza with mental health services because there has been a couple of organizations that have been providing free mental health support for the Israeli citizens being impacted and I am like it's straight up Maslow's law of hierarchy you know this is not right now this is considered an ultimate luxury the people on the ground 
don't have access to the very basic needs. They have no access to water, no access to fuel, no access to internet in most places. And the ones that do have internet are operating on 2G. Um, last night, Israeli government gave them 24 hours to evacuate and go to the south. And you're talking about 1.1 million people that were asked to evacuate and move about 30 kilometers. I don't know, but roads, roads are bombed. There are no, there's no way to get there. And when they did try to move, they attacked them on the way. They dropped bombs on them. It was, I don't know what it was. It was a trap. But that's the reality that they're living right now. And it has been their reality. This hasn't this hasn't been an issue that came out of a vacuum seven days ago. I actually was on this podcast what was it? Twenty two years ago. And even then it wasn't a new war. It wasn't a new situation, occupation. occupation. This occupation has been going on for 75 years. So I think this would be a really good moment to uh, talk about people who are in our group. So we we know a lot of good and dear friends that are currently living in Gaza. We've been trying to get as much updates from them as possible, but given the situation, we're not able to get all the all the immediate updates that we've been... With the lack of electricity to Gaza has been cut off. Yeah, like the Israelis. Cut off. Hospitals are operating on very intermittent electricity, if even. They have gone for hours with no uh, power or electricity. And we are talking about a population of point two million people that have been intensely bombed there were the bombs that were the bombs that were dropped in the past week alone have been more than the ones dropped on Afghanistan in a whole year and we're talking about a space that is half the size of New York just to give you a perspective and understanding of what we're talking about when the government asks the people of Gaza to leave and people believe that they have an option to leave. That is not, that is not an option. Where are people going to go? Literally at this point, our friends are hopping from, from building to building, shelter to shelter. They have no bomb shelters. When I talk about shelters, I'm talking about cement houses. These are tents. These are people with diabetes who are carrying their supplies in plastic bags, trying to get from one place to another. At time of recording, the Palestinian Health Ministry has listed 1,800 people have died. 60% of those people are children. I don't know how to explain what's happening in Palestine to you other than there's a massacre and a genocide of people who look like Nor and people who I love. Yeah, I I have never ever felt this helpless and hopeless in in my life. It's a kind of anger. I've always been. My friends always joke that I'm a peace loving hippie, but I'm at a point where I'm so angry. I 
I don't know where to go with my anger. I don't know who to channel my anger towards. And as, as I can't even, I don't have the words to explain what the people in Gaza are going through. And still I'm considered lucky and privileged. I am going through a whole bag of emotions that I don't know how to process. Feelings of guilt, anger, sadness. I just don't know what to do. I I feel like I failed the people. I failed our friends. How do you say goodbye while still giving them hope that no, you this is not the end for you? And I don't I don't know diabetes wise. I we have been in contact with some major global organizations trying to mobilize diabetes supply on the ground and they have lost hope too. They're like, there's no way for things to go in. We don't know. We're just using whatever stock we have on ground right now. And we don't have a plan with moving forward. We don't have that luxury and privilege to raise funds or collect supplies. I don't know if that will change in the future, in the near future, I'm hoping, and I'm really hoping that it would. But our hands are tied right now. It's not to say that we're not trying. We're trying, we're, we're exhausting every avenue we have, but it's not up to the people anymore. The governments are playing a nasty game and the innocent people are getting stuck in the middle and people have just, the Palestinian people have just lost all hope. And so we speak for them while their voices are being silenced. We are appreciative of the people who have given us a platform over the last couple of days. Nora and I have been able to organize a coalition that we can link in the show notes to help bring humanitarian aid to any place that is being cut off from water, electricity, insulin, and basic human supplies. We don't know if this is going to do anything for the people of Gaza, but we have to try. I know the Palestinian people, and especially the people of Gaza, are some of the most resilient people you'll ever meet. And even throughout this whole struggle, they keep saying thank God for everything. And I, I sorry, I'm really struggling to find the words right now. I just... I'll ask this the only thing that the people of Gaza have asked us to do is to speak up, to not be silent. Please don't let other people being uncomfortable make you be silent. Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, and our friends don't deserve to die. If you're able to listen to the episode giving you the information and the history and the background that is the land of Palestine, please listen. Please say something. We don't hate Jewish people. Everybody deserves to be alive. I don't know what else to say, guys. This is this is absolutely not a religion war. This has nothing to do with religion. It is completely political and it's an occupation. It's a genocide right now. It um basic human needs have been denied and continue to be denied. And as somebody living outside of Palestine, 
I think one of the biggest struggles for me right now is I don't get to mourn our losses. I don't get to be sad in quote unquote peace. I I have to justify my existence and my right to exist every single day. I get to see emails, read emails and hear people standing up and condemning one side and dehumanizing Palestinians and dehumanizing me, my kids, my family. Like we have no right to exist. Like we're not humans. I think that's, that's been one of the most devastating parts for me living outside. Unfortunately, unfortunately, as horrible, as horrible as this may sound, we've become used to the death and watching our people die every single day. But when you see the whole world just show up and act like this all came from vacuum and that we weren't dying for 75 years. And now suddenly only some people's lives matter and the rest don't. Where were you for the past 75 years? Where were you when we were speaking up and telling you that we've been we've been denied our basic human rights, we've been oppressed, we've been slaughtered and massacred. Now suddenly all humans' lives matter now. I'm so angry. Even when friends reach out to me right now, telling me they're there for me, I get so mad as much as I appreciate it. And I understand that the media has done an amazing job at whitewashing the situation and giving a biased narrative. But I'm so angry. Where were you when I tried to educate you? Where were you when I spoke up? And I don't know what to do anymore. I'm just... I'm not giving up. I'm not throwing in the towel. I'm going to keep fighting and I'm going to keep resisting in whatever way I see is right. The following episode is proof that we diabetics doing things talked about this in 2021, but it's something that's relevant and important to us on this platform and that we won't be silent in the face of death and massacre. And we invite the rest of you to also speak. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's... I don't know what the future holds, but if you can educate yourself, that's going to be the big, the most helpful weapon for us right now. Um, use your voices, contact your government officials. This is our tax money. Ironically, our tax money is going there when we don't even have universal health system, when people don't have access to resources, healthcare resources in the U.S., and Israel has a universal healthcare system. This is why your voice matters. This is why you need to have make an educated vote. Even though you think international matters don't impact you, they do impact you. They impact us all. Nobody's free unless all of us are free. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us. You can't dehumanize some and humanize other people.
that's not how it works. Selective mor morality is straight up hypocrisy and being complicit to occupation and massacre and apartheid and genocide. Yeah, I think that's all I have for now. I hope I've done the people of Gaza justice in what I've said. And if I did it, I'm sorry. It's just a lot right now. And there's a, so much to process. And I did my best. I just want to add that this is for Muhammad and his family. And for Abdullah and Riyadh and Touch. We won't ever stop praying. And I remember like my first appointment when I just unpacked everything and you, you guys are just getting the diabetes part of it. You're not getting, you know, just the, the other life. And she just looked at me. She's like, wow, how are you still here? You know, she was like, I don't think you realize how much trauma you've endured in your life. And I'm like, well, now that I've said it this way and you're, to paraphrase it, I'm like, yeah, but still, I feel like. I feel like I don't have the right to complain because I do acknowledge my privileges. You know, I, I do acknowledge my, whether it's my light skin privilege, whether it's my having a financially stable family, you know, all these things, access to healthcare, not living in a, a war-torn country, you know, I do acknowledge and I feel like I have no right to complain about these things. So that's another thing that I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with currently and working on in therapy is kind of realize, acknowledging my privileges and also realizing that other people's struggles, which I perceive as more worthy, don't undermine mine. So Max. retweet. Big yeah. Max. Yeah. Hopefully we don't have the same therapist because they would have a lot to deal with between the two of us. <laughs> three. Uh, yeah. A lot of three of us really too. Right. So <laughs> I also, okay. So I, I want to shift you, you brought up, you know, being thankful, being grateful for, you know, not living in a war-torn country, acknowledging your privilege and also giving yourself space for living a tough existence and having a hard time. I think that's for me, uh, I, I have a hard time admitting that too. Like why, why should I have it? Why should I have depression? Uh, it doesn't add up, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you don't want to uh, skip over the people who are really suffering and yeah. the places in the world where there are injustices and terrible things happening to people who you know or or look like you or you have you know have something in common with and have shared an experience with. So I I know you are from UAE, but you are Palestinian, and yeah. I, I'd like for you to kind of walk us through not just what's been going on over the past three and a half weeks or so, but also just historically what that's like for a Palestinian person to exist in today's world and, you know, talk about the injustices that are going on back home. Yeah. First of all, I'm going to like start off by saying speaking up for Palestinian rights does not, does not mean that it, you're anti-Semitic or standing against the Jewish population. They are not opposing beliefs or missions. They actually go hand in hand. Nobody's free until all of us are free. So in saying that, so my personal story is my, my grandfather, well, I'm going to start with my grandfather because that's, that's as far as information as I have, but my, 
every generation before that has lived on the land of Palestine. And my great grandfather was was pretty well off, and we lived. He was the leader of the tribe in our village back then, and he had a lot of land and property and all that stuff. So at the time, the Palestine was under the British mandate. It was colonized by the British Army. And when after World War One, the Jewish population needed a space, a safe space to call their home that protects them from the outside world after the horrendous things that happened to them during the Holocaust. So the British people were like, hey, here's the land. You can have it, you know. And in doing so, they cl- they claim that this land, the, this land is for them and ha- they had there was no people on it, which from personal experience, we know is not true. You know, it's like my whole family lived there. And there are a lot of also documents, historical documents that prove that there were people on the land. So anyways, the only way that they were going to get this, that this only Jewish state is to erase the people that were there. And that's when the ethnic cleansing started in 1948. In 1948, our village which is called Mzera, now there's a huge Israeli settlement on top of it, was seized and they were forcibly displaced. My dad's uh, family, so my my grandfather and my great-grandfather moved to Jerusalem at the time. And in Jerusalem, they were made refugees in Jerusalem. We actually have the Anorwa refugee card. I have a photo of it. My dad sent it to me a couple of days ago. And And in Jerusalem, because of again, privilege, because my grandfather, because of his wealth and his connections, my grandfather was able to get a job in Qatar to provide a life and like money for his family. So they don't live in, they, so they don't have to live in refugee camps. And then he came back, he got married to my grandmother and, and then had kids. They had five kids at the time. And then in 1967 war happened and my grandfather was still working outside Palestine. And my grandmother had to leave Palestine with her five kids with literally rockets and bombs dropping on them. And oh, I posted on my personal page, the story, my grandmother, like till now. Oh, did I mention it about the leggings? I know, but you can tell oh. us, please tell us. So my like a couple of years ago, I've noticed like my grandmother's always wearing, well, they're not technically leggings. They're like pants underwear, but I don't think they have them in the Western Long johns. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. She always wears them no matter what she's wearing, no matter what she's wearing. So I asked her once, I'm like, why do you always wear these? You know, it's like, it's clearly not for decency because you're wearing a long dress, you know, and it's not transparent. And she was like, like, you can see, you know, this glassy look in her eyes, and like sadness. And she was like, well, when we had to flip, like flip out Jerusalem with the, during the war, there were, we didn't have time to, to get prepared. So we just left with the kids, like in the middle of the night. And at some point she was like, there are missiles and rockets and all that shooting going on. So they had to like crawl on the ground and on rubble or you know rubble and bushes and all that stuff and her knees were just like all cut up and scraped and everything so till now she feels like her subconscious brain is telling her that she needs to be prepared for everything you know it's like and I'm like but trauma it is trauma it's It's trauma and and that's the sad thing like there was this there's this Palestinian psychologist who said we actually don't have post-traumatic stress disorder because we don't have the post 
we're right. content like the post never left we're still living that trauma and it's become generational trauma we've never had the the space or the time to even process that trauma even the people who had left like i've never been to palestine i've, I've i like up until last year i did not have the right to return you know i had no rights of being there even though i'm palestinian you know it's like my whole family is palestinian so anyways so that's how they left they left Quds, which is jerusalem and they settled they moved to a couple of places before they ended up uh, settling in the uae and my grandfather got the uae passport because he was a lawyer and he helped establish the the country so they gave him the passport and they made him the ambassador of the uae in jordan so that's why they ended up in jordan so for me as a Palestinian, like as an Emirati with Palestinian origins, it it's very hard because, and I, I, never, I never struggled with this topic growing up in the UAE because over there, everybody was on the same page in terms of what hap- what's happening, you know? It's like nobody, I, I didn't have to explain it to anybody. I didn't have to defend myself or justify my existence to anybody. And it wasn't until I came here where, I really struggled with that. And I think that's actually also was one of the main forces behind my depression is I was tired of fighting. And it was, it's very interesting because when during like the Black Lives Matter movement, when you would hear black people saying, we are tired, or you'd hear them telling us, don't tell us how we're supposed to feel or how we're supposed to express our frustration or our anger. It, it, resonated with me you know but at the same time I wasn't allowed to say that because I knew if I said anything I would be labeled anti-semitic and I knew that the way that the media portrayed the whole oppression and apartheid and ethnic cleansing was very whitewashed you know and the whole western world even well not the whole like in in their defense there are some people who have been privy to this uh, uh, to the reality from the beginning, but still like the majority viewed us as the problem, you know? And it's like, I am, I am the victim here for like lack of better words, you know? It's like, we are being oppressed. We are being subjected to, to police uh, brutality, you know, to military, the like militarization of the police, to stealing our land, stealing our house. And this is like not even going into details of what happened during the war of 1948. You know, there are historians, Israeli historians who have wrote books on this topic about like, there's a whole book called Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. And it goes into details about everything, the horrendous stuff. And it's interesting because the Palestinian people, the older generation did not, don't talk about this. There's like so much trauma. And I think part of it is also, they view it as shame or failure to have protected their land in a way. And they also, they're super proud that they don't want to play victim. They don't want to be victimized. You know, it's like, yes, throughout this all, we're still resilient. We're still fighting. We're still going through it. We don't want your pity party kind of thing. Well, and I think too, like you said, being tired and like, you know, reaching a certain point where you just avoid those types of things just because you don't have the energy anymore to continue to try to fight for that. Yeah, there you have that on one hand. And then you also have on the other hand where you know that speaking up, you're going to pay a price for that, you know, being like, we've already seen like 
yes, there's been a, a huge shift in the narrative where we've seen a lot of people speak up for Palestinians, but we've also seen how they tried to hijack the whole the whole narrative and make it seem that this is anti-Semitic. You know, where it's it gaslighting. Is it's it, literally it eighty three years. That so when you guys were like, we're tired. When you say tired, as a black person, as an Arab person, it's we're tired of being told that nothing's happening. You're you how eighty three years of gaslighting, homie. Like because I mean the whole conflict or not even conflict war ethnic cleansing has been happening now for. 80 something years and it's like also this thought process of this has been happening forever and it's always going to happen and it's like rooted in the in religious history when really it actually has nothing to do with religion at all and it's all about land space people and that's it but you know what even at this point it is it's just about basic human rights you know it's like literally like people are just asking for their basic human rights you know it's like but we don't even have that. We don't have whether we're talking about where we, whether we're talking about Palestinian on the land of Palestine or Palestinians outside the land of Palestine. We don't have basic rights. Like even in the U.S., people talk about freedom of speech, freedom to protest. We don't even have that right. The BDS movement is literally like a, a protest. This is your right to protest, to spend your money where you wish to be, and it's already be, like. By the by, in the U.S., it is labeled a terrorist organization. It's banned in the U.S. We can't. So I was thinking about doing this. I was like, I should put stickers on the food that says like they support Israel. And so I started googling it and was like, Oh no! If I do this, I'm going to jail. It's super illegal here. I had no it, idea. The anger and the frustration is really about like the double standards and like the impunity when it comes to this matter. Like there was, I forgot his name, blanking out his name. So he's actually a Holocaust survivor and he was like a mental health specialist. I believe he's a psychologist. And he, he said, he's like, you can clearly see the double standards. He's like, why is it when in Hong Kong, the protesters throwing rocks at, uh, at the police in the media, in the Western media, that's portrayed as heroism. But when children, children are throwing rocks at, at like, one of like the strongest militaries in the world on uh, tanks, you know, they are viewed as terrorists. Like why, why is there that double standards? And you know what? I don't like, yeah, I think, I think I just got really into the conversation and I can talk about this like for hours and hours because it is a 73 year long occupation. It's complicated and goes way beyond that. But I think to just kind of keep things relevant at this point, I think a lot of what a lot of people don't realize or don't want to realize is this is not and this is not a both sides situation because it's not an equal fight. Um, it is one side who's the oppressor and the other side just resisting the oppression. You know, we are just fighting for our basic human rights. And in doing so, a lot of people, innocent people have suffered and a diabetes community has suffered suffered a lot you know we and right now we have like two different situations where you have Gaza which is basically the world's largest open air prison you know it's like yes it's controlled by Palestinians it's even though it's Palestinian territory it's it's still controlled by Israel there there's been I think it's 15 years now 15 year blockade where blockade like land air and sea nothing is allowed to go in nothing is allowed to go out without permits and permits are almost impossible to get I was listening to an audiobook today it's called everything 
except for Palestine by Mark Lamont. I love him. And he was, he was talking about a story of this lady who uh, is from Gaza. She got married to, to a guy in Jerusalem and they moved there and she applied for a permit like a couple of times over the span of like three months to go visit her family. She kept getting denied and then they, she, they gave her permission. And then when she went to Gaza, it took her uh, she was applying for two years and they kept denying her v- her uh, her permit to leave to go back home and then they issued her husband a permit and not her and now they've like they've been separated for four years they're not allowing her permission to leave now um okay so this this specific scenario is not related to diabetes but let's for a second just for a second say that this lady did have diabetes okay as diabetics we prepare and we over prepare we go on a trip, we double our insulin. You're going for a trip that's supposedly a month or two, and you end there for six years with no, with no end in sight. How are you supposed to, to prepare for that in a diabetes sense, in a place where there's a blockade, where there's very extremely minimal access to healthcare? Like even, we know, we know friends in Gaza who are in med school, so they're very into the uh, healthcare scene. They told us, because I had extra pumps, and I was like, I'm willing to help, like, if there's a way for us to find, like, if, if there's, if we can find a way for us to get this to you, I would gladly get this to you. And I collected a lot of supplies, so they had enough supplies to easily last them a year. First of all, there was no way to get it to, to them. Secondly, he told us, he's like, we have in all of Gaza, the Gaza population is 2 million people in a very tiny, overpopulated, like, um, a strip of land. There are 2 million people, only three, only three people in all, all of Gaza have insulin and pumps. None of them are on their insulin pumps because they have no access to supplies. That's how bad the situation is here. And I know sometimes I get frustrated that, you know what, I don't know. Dexcom took more than four days to to send me my my sensor or my my pump site failed or whatever. But well, there's again, like a that's six a privilege. car line at Walgreens, you know, it's like how exactly. And then you say that, okay, what about the check? Let's let's move out of Gaza, okay? Let's go to Occupy Jerusalem. The checkpoints. We they're claiming that it's not an apartheid. Well, what do you say when there are checkpoints only for Palestinians and roads only for Jewish Israeli people to roam as they please without being stopped? What if I want to go? And a lot of these checkpoints were built intentionally to inconvenience people. You know, it's like they're checkpoints and there is the apartheid wall. There's like a whole wall that's like more than double the size of the Berlin Wall. That is just like. They just decide, okay, let's put it here. A lot of families have been separated from each other. Like imagine you and your brother, I don't know if you have a brother, but decide to have a house in front of each other, you know, to raise your kids together. And then in comes a wall. And now it takes you like five plus hours with the checkpoints and everything to just get to your brother's house. But anyways, think that you're trying to get to a pharmacy. How, how are you, how are you going to get to a pharmacy with the checkpoints? A lot of like, even like from a, from a medical, you know, so many people have died at these checkpoints. Oh yeah. So there's like this whole problem with freedom of movement. Like it's an entire, and I want to say a specific case that was like very important to like everything that's happening right now, but rest in peace to Omar Yagashi, a baby who was supposed to have a surgery on Israeli land and that was denied going onto Israeli land because they were Palestinian. 
So this was a baby, like an infant who had scheduled a surgery to survive. This family got like held up at a bunch of different checkpoints on June 18th. And they like their child literally died in their arms. Like this is, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. When people are like, we need to see like both sides. Like what is the other side to that? Make me understand. Make me understand why an infant needs to be lost to a cause that like this. And like, even like, like in terms of diabetes. So UNRWA, what's called, sorry, UNRWA is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees. And a lot of the residents in Gaza are actually refugees that were displaced from what we now know as Israel. So they, as of 2018, they said that they have 1,050 T1Ds registered with them. Keep in mind that that's not always accurate because, first of all, that's only the refugee population. You also have the Gaza population that is not listed under UNRWA. And they, they only have, they don't have any public diabetes specialist physicians. So they have the private clinics for these physicians. But you're talking about a city that has, 55% unemployment rate. So the poverty in the city is through the roof. People and Israel controls their water. They control their electricity. They control everything. So these people have absolutely no resources in terms of just everyday living um, living needs. So how do you expect them to have access to diabetes care? We know that diabetes care is very expensive. Now, UNRWA provides for the refugees insulin syringes and just like medical checkups because of uh, aid cuts from the U.S. They had to, they don't have the budget that they used to. So they stopped providing strips. Imagine managing your diabetes without strips. So that's, that's like another, it's just like one crisis after the other, after the other. And even like in West Bank and East Jerusalem, 15.3% of the population has diabetes, whereas the whole world has 6%. And they think, they think that 4.4 out of these, uh, out of the 15.3% have type one, but based like on resources on the ground, doctors, physician, all that, they actually think that it's higher. It could be like between 18 and 21%. And like we, it's just the small things as well. So these are like the big things, but like the small things as the person with diabetic that we take for granted. It's like, imagine living in a, in a house that has an average of three to four hours of electricity every day. What's going to happen to your insulin? You know, like we freak out when we go to the beach for, for an hour or two. Imagine like living with no, no power. It's just like all these things. And like, even when the bombing was happened and I kept thinking, I'm like, Everything is closed. Like literally everything is closed. There is the, the, there's like a food crisis happening because again, Israel controls what they think is enough food coming in or what, what is enough and what types of food are going in and going out. And I'm like, okay, what happens if we are, I'm stuck in my house hiding from these bombs and my blood sugar goes low and I don't have access to gummy bears, which Israel might think that, you know what, Gaza doesn't need gummy bears. It's not an essential. Like things like that, it's, it's gone beyond a political stance. And I know when I took the t- takeover, when I did the takeover, a lot of people were very upset that a diabetes page was talking about politics. But at this point, it's not about politics. It's about human rights. And you know what? Politics 
and politics has become a healthcare issue, you know? It's like even today, I was, the human rights organization had a live on Instagram and they were talking about the environmental, the environmental, what's the word? Factors that affect health and specifically like maternal health. And I kept thinking, again, I kept going back to the situation of Gaza and the situation in Palestine. You know what, even even the the whole country, let's include Israel in the in the situation too these bombs that keep dropping this the toxic gas the phosphorite gas all that this we don't know the extent of damage that this does in relationship to our diabetes and we have friends in Gaza who said like it it like wrecks havoc on their blood sugars oh yeah like just that you know, I think early on we we were hearing stories about you know people couldn't sleep because the the bombs were going yeah. off at night all night by design, like a, as a war tactic to drive you insane. And we know what lack of sleep does to our blood sugar. We know what dehydration does to our blood sugar. Mm-hmm. We know what stress does to stress. our blood sugar. So you know, and multiply that times, you know, the worst stress that any of us here in the U.S. have ever had to endure by a million. And mm-hmm. of course you have those types of outcomes. Yeah. And it was like, I'm not in, I, I'm not in Palestine. I'm in the U S safety is not a concern in that sense. And my blood sugars were still through the roof because of this stress and the anger and the frustration. And it, it, we go back to talking about, I felt guilty that I or I felt like I didn't have the right to complain about that because what do I have to complain about? You know, bombs are not dropping on my head, you know, it's like, and then at the same time, I was just so exhausted because I knew I had to take care of my mental health and I had to take care of my physical health as well. But I couldn't, I couldn't walk away because I felt like that was my responsibility to be the voice for the voiceless or, and speak to the injustices happening. And by the way, I just want to say that it's, Eritrea, you know me. So this is not that, oh, she's passionate about Palestine because she's Palestinian. I'm an intersectional activist. I believe in speaking up for everybody oppressed, you know, whether it was during the BLM movement, LBGQA community, the Asian population, Syrian, anybody that needs a voice, I was there, you know, I've always been there, the immigrants. But right now, the Palestinian people need us. And, you know, for the longest time, I, I wasn't able to speak up because I was, I, I don't know, I knew that I would be gaslighted. And because I felt like it's just going to be me against the world, you know, at this point, at that point. Let me ask you this, because, and it might just be because of my friendship and you know business relationship with Eritrea that I'm more exposed to Palestinian Palestinian people but I also have a close friend and, and business partner associate that is pal his family is is Palestinian and you know so I'm more because I have diversified those friendships I'm more exposed to these things and so I do have a personal connection to it at least just one person removed and at the same time people are upset that I am talking about it and on the other hand, I've never, I don't think that I've seen as much support globally. It's very similar to Black Lives Matter, where there was like that specific day where there were a mil- millions of protesters globally 
protesting the, the murder of, of black people by police in the United States. And, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing a little like not, a, not as large, but a, a similar start to you know th- that movement. And I was talking to Eritrea about it earlier. How much of that is just because the democratization of access on phones and being able to show what's really happening? Because what's really clear to me as like a marketing guy and communications guy is the gaslighting that, that Eritrea mentioned earlier is that there's a really pro-Israel, anti-Palestine narrative that's fed to the U.S. media. And for me in particular, like a white guy growing up in, you know, evangelical South Dallas, Texas, I remember, and I was, I've told Eritrea this before, I remember an announcement going out at my school when Yasser Arafat died in like celebration of an enemy, you know, you know, that type of narrative. And that's how people who grew up where I grew up, that entire relationship is framed. So it is a deep seated misinformation battle. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely been a shift in the narrative and I feel like, I think also the black lives matter movement that we've experienced in the past couple of years two, three years in a way prepped people for how to deal with this, but you still have a lot of people, like you said, that have already been brainwashed and are scared. They're scared to speak up for Palestinian rights, thinking that that's anti-Semitic and that's gonna harm the Jewish population. What? And this is where they're trying, like the Israeli government and Israeli propaganda is trying to shift the focus and shift the narrative into making it seem that anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are interwined. We've seen a lot of people who are either Jewish Israelis or just Jewish from different countries speak up for the Palestinian people against what's happening from on behalf, like what's happening from the Israeli government. And it was actually interesting because I've, like, I've, I've had this, I've, I've struggled with this situation for the past, like, 11 years, if not longer. And two weeks ago, we were at a protest, and there were these two women carrying signs. One said, one said something along, it basically said something along the lines of another Jew in support of a free Palestine and the other one said, not in my name. So I walked up to them and I was like, thank you. Like, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, and then one of them asked if she could hug me. We're both fully vaccinated. We have masks. I did ask you was vaccinated. And I, I said, yes. And we hugged and out of nowhere, I just started bawling. Like I just, I had all this bottled up emotions that I just let it go. And she like, she clearly saw me like crying and upset. And she just kept like whispering. She's like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry you're going through this. Like, and and I told her, I'm like, you know what? And I'm sorry you guys had to go through what you went through too. It was not okay then. And it's not okay now, you know? And that's, That's that's what gets me though. Isn't it exactly the same? It is. It is. And this is why. So there's this, I mean, well, using- and, well and, and before, before, I want to clarify that before, before I let you continue, like the, the beginnings of Nazi Germany and the stories that we hear about the Holocaust and World War II, it starts with the state claiming property and moving the people into ghettos. And 
to me, I think that's what's most shocking about what's happening over the past 75 years and learning about the true history of it, because we did not cover this in my world history class in ninth grade in high school, but is how similar they are and how quickly like they turned heel and and did the same thing to another people group that they that that happened to Jews and like the murder of of six million Jews it was not that long ago and I it was awful and horrific, but it doesn't two wrongs don't make a right and I think exactly like, that, that's what I've been saying like the, uh, two wrongs do not make right like I that's that's just what I keep saying and it's really frustrating when the the whole both like both sides or the Hamas excuse gets thrown in like just to put it out there I do not agree with what Hamas does but at the same time you need to understand that first of all this this ethnic cleansing has started has started in 1947 okay the war happened 1948 but it started in 1947 Hamas wasn't established until 1987 so and then what happened in these latest events like I don't know what to call them but it's like it just keeps everything just like everything explodes and then it calms down for a while and then so in the in the past couple of weeks it it had not like every yesterday we were with a friend who was completely oblivious to what was happening and she was like wait but didn't Hamas throw rockets I'm like yeah that's where you came in the middle of the conversation you know there was land that's being stolen for years and years and Israeli settlers walking around with weapons backed by the, the military when we don't even have access to things like water, healthcare, freedom to move, just walk in the streets. You know, we can't live in our, our own homes without it being stolen by illegal Israeli settlers, you know, and it's like, and I'm not, I'm not personally using the word illegal. That's interna- by international law and condemned by United Nations and Human Rights Watch. And and what do you expect when people are being oppressed, you know? Well, like and I think resistance. I think that's where, you know, I think Hamas is is weaponized by the media. And certainly yeah. they're, you know, because it's easy to point at like a group and say, these people are bad. And but then you like you said, they weren't established in 1987. And I can't claim to be an, an expert on Hamas. But what it strikes to me is that in when you there's all those old memes that I feel like a lot of the guys I went to high school used to share when they were trying to like show that they were manly. They'd be like, if you're caged up, you turn into a lion, you know, and you turn, you know, I don't know, like, and I and I feel like that that like environment when you're sequestered and your rights are taken away and you have to become a person that you know by any means necessary to get your freedom and 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 represent your people that you do things that a person who like us in the US, we've never had to take up arms in defense of our home and, you know, or have to do things in the name of that. And I think that it's, that's why war is so complex, but at the same time, Hamas is not an army and are not funded by a government. So I, again, like when we, when we talk about why we're having these conversations, whether it's Black Lives Matter, talking about police brutality, whether it's uh, Uyghur Muslims in China being you know, sequ- mm-hmm. taken away from their homes and put in concentration camps, whether it's Palestinians being forcibly removed from their homes and put into an open air prison and denied basic human rights. All of those are, like you said earlier, intersectionality, part of the same issue, which is you know, it's racism, it's human rights, it's treating people differently because of who they are and where they're from. And, you know, we talked about this before we started recording. I feel like, and it's kind of taken a lot for me to unpack this, like as a, as a, a white guy in America, 
colonialism and sort of the spirit of conquering was celebrated in in mm-hmm. my in my life in my culture and like that is you know you you mentioned that, like real Christopher Columbus shit you know it's it hasn't been that long since we used to sing songs about Christopher Columbus you know like and you Freaking know all, pilgrim <laughs> yeah and all those horrible things that he did to the native americans and you know people talking about stolen land and like you know Everywhere we are, you know, everywhere my skin goes is stolen land from somebody who talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about it. And so, you know, I didn't do that, uh, but I benefited from it. And, you know, people died who I'll never meet and I'll never know about because they've been whitewashed from history. And I think now that's where I go back to the democratization of media, where people like us can just create content that is on the ground with our phone and tell and speak truth to power in, in ways that haven't been able to be done before. Yeah. It's like, it's like if, if, if the liberation of a group of people is uncomfortable or intimidating to you, it's one of two things. One is you're benefiting from it Two, You probably need to sit with yourself a little bit longer and ask yourself why, you know, it's, and I, I have like major respect and seriously hats off for, all the Jewish and Israeli people who have spoken up against the Israeli government's ethnic cleansing, apartheid, and brutality. Like, I know it takes a lot of guts, and I know it takes a lot of courage. Like, we've seen Bernie Sanders. He's, like, been, like, he's, he's been called self-hating Jew since the very beginning, you know, just because he's standing up for injustice. And it's, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's a video circulating around by interview by Russell Peters. He interviewed a guy called Gabor Mate, and he actually spoke about like a couple of things that really stood out for me. It's first, he said, you don't have to support Hamas to support Palestinian rights. Being pro-Palestine does not mean you're anti-Jewish. And I feel like that needs to be screened from the top of every building. You know, it's like, and more so to people who are new to the to this whole topic, especially Americans and quote unquote liberal Americans, because in their fight to make sure that the Jewish people are given the respect and dignity that they deserve, which we all agree with, me included, I think they're scared to talk about the Palestinian, the 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 Palestinian occupation in fear that they're gonna oppress the Jewish um, community, which again, it's not Palestinians versus Jewish. It's I don't think that's the fear, Noor. I don't think that's the fear. I think that's you being really nice. I think the fear is colonialism. I think that Americans are afraid to say that this is wrong because then it turns around to us also being wrong, being this country. Like it's real... Is really, really I think, it's, it's I think serving that's too complicated for them. It, to no, no, like it it's serving. Way. It's serving very apple doesn't fall far from tree. Like they are literally like part of that state being part of its existence is that our government funds its existence. So yeah, like, yeah. That, you're talking like you're talking on like a government level. As a com- no, as, as an American community, like I think that a lot of politicians or even commentators or even the way that questions are being asked on CNN and MSNBC, like it's very around the framework to be pro-Israel because if you see what I'm saying? I don't don't think it has anything to do with like falling, the apple falling far from the tree. I think it has more to do with the Israeli lobbyists being super powerful, you know, and trying to control the narrative and all that. 
big money yeah it's it's really about big money at this point it's really and like if you look at if you look at the 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 people who are like it wanting to fight for the government in Israel majority of them don't care about religion you know it's it's not about religion but yet they try to make it about religion because they know that's the weak that that's the weakest link you know that's and where they're going to get and it enrages the mob it gets it, it does it's that that tried and true propaganda tactic that I would say the Republican Party in the United States is really good at. They do an awesome job of distracting from the real issue and hitting you with really like some of the best PR people in our in our country work for lobbyist groups because that's their job is to control the narrative, to keep the money coming in, to keep the candidates in power. And, you know, when people during the presidential debates, when people were saying Joe Biden's one of his big weak points in the Democratic Party was his was his stance on Israel. This is what they were talking about because he and Kamala, uh, Kamala Harris too, like she's the police big supporters. So, of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that they're we're learning a lot. And again, like I, I think you're right, Nora. Like most people have no idea about how the you know our global allies and governments work together. And mm-hmm. also, really, also a lot. Like this is, I don't think this is a very well-known fact, even amongst Palestinians, but actually Hamas was really the doing of the Israeli government. So I knew that they funded them. Yeah. They funded and the creation. Who is a Holocaust survivor talked about this and he, like, I will quote exactly what he said. He was like, it was an, Hamas is an Islamic organization encouraged by Israel as an as a counterweight to the secular PLO, which Israel didn't want to deal with. During the elections, they wanted the shock of everyone, but psychologically speaking, like people tend to more, no, that's my me saying, I interpreted. Psychologically speaking, people tend to go for extremist leadership when they are hopeless and deprived of any possibility and basic human rights. So it's not justifying, I'm, I'm not justifying their actions in any way possible. I'm just stating like, matter of fact facts kind of thing and he also talks he also so this is a direct quote from him again a holocaust survival who said the disproportion of power and responsibility on oppression is so markedly on one side take the worst thing you can say about hamas and multiply that by a thousand times and it still will not meet the israeli repression killing and disposition of palestinians and you know what's the sad thing in this whole situation is if I had said that or a Palestinian person had said that, nobody, they would have lost the battle right off the bat. But acknowledging and saying that this is coming from a Jewish person gives it that much weight. And it's like we've seen all these people talk about how we need to elevate black voices you know allow them to share their story to speak up to it's it's their story you know this is what they went through and we need to just sit back shut up and listen and that same that same rule doesn't apply to palestinians and and that's that's pretty frustrating and i've also experienced that firsthand when i talk about it from my perspective nobody like it doesn't carry that much weight but when i say oh 
this Jewish person said this, or this Israeli person says this, or this ex-IDF soldier said that, then suddenly everybody's like, oh, let's listen. Right. And that's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think even, I can't, I can't imagine what you guys are experiencing from commentary from people, sh- you know, when you share content, because it's like, I, I've had people accuse me of sharing propaganda, one-sided things, and I think you're right. The Palestinian perspective is just so easily dismissed by by people as as completely one-sided and then i see these people and the stuff that they share because i'm a big believer in like studying the the both sides just to see mm-hmm. how they communicate with each other and i all i see is erasure of culture i see gaslighting i see recrafting narrative i see hamas what weaponizing hamas as as like oh look at these bad hamas people so we're justified to do whatever we want to to palestine because of this and, you know, it, it reminds me, you know, a lot of, you know, the, it, it's, it's very top of mind for me because during COVID, I read this long article or like a, a, a sort of tweet storm from someone who was saying, the reason that COVID-19 is going to wreak havoc on the United States is because it's invisible and you can't point to a singular source to say, this is the enemy. Uh, and it was this, this way of life that, tra- that changed and we, and we weren't able to adapt before it really uh, hurt us. And and he contrasted that with 9-11 where he said, okay, well, the, the Al-Qaeda is the bad guy. We are going to go get Al-Qaeda. And everyone was united behind that one idea. Like, Al-Qaeda attacked us. We're going to go get Al-Qaeda. And the Islamophobia that has spilled out from that, I think, has it really affect Arab Americans and, also, and Palestinians. And it is deeply rooted also in, in why the media is portraying this in, in the West like they are. But at, at that time, I think like, that's, where, that's how the media is using Hamas in in the U.S. is that they're saying, hey, Hamas is bad. So then, and they're launching rockets and they don't, they redact all of the other information from the headlines that says, hey, this is in response to, you know, the, the Sheikh Jarrah and, and all the other uh, events. But like you said, most people, and I think like this is something that my, my dad used to tell me a lot, and it's kind of a really weird right-wing Republican idea, but you'll never go broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. And that's what you said earlier about most people have no idea. They don't really care and they just take what they're fed uh, and they just keep on moving. And I think that's what the movement and, you know, the, you know, what social media, the impact of social media is having where we can hear from Holocaust survivors and say, who are addressing this directly and, and people who, you know, aren't, are not Palestinian and are, and are, and are Jewish and they're saying, Hey, this is wrong. This is, and I think that's where, you know, what I was looking for, early on was like some sort of source of, of information that could cut through the people who are very resistant to what's happening. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how we're going to get there, but like, even I, I think it's just kind of really humanizing us where we were always viewed as by the media as terrorists or the enemy, you know, as like, I can yeah, just like humanizing us. And even like from a diabetes point of view, we've seen so many diabetes advocates talk about access to insulin, but nobody said anything when it came to the Palestinian people. It's like, okay, we understand that you don't want to get into the political situation, but we're still humans. We still need insulin. We still need access to insulin. And even from just a legal standpoint, from like international law, it says in international law, it mandates that occupying powers must ensure that the, that the right to health is upheld during the term of the occupation. So it is the Israeli government's responsibility to ensure that healthcare 
in in specifically in our situation right now in diabetes that insulin and access to healthcare is provided, which we clearly know is not. Yes, legally, maybe we can say that the people in Jerusalem have access to these, but when it, it when it comes like push comes to shove, when it's applied, they they're, they're, they're they make their lives miserable intentionally so they can willingly leave Palestine, you know? They're subjected to humiliation, hours at checkpoints, horrible treatment at hospitals, if even, you know, making them pay upfront all in cash, knowing that a lot of people don't have that kind of money. These tactics where it's not written, you know, that you'd be like, oh, hey, you know, this, but this is where we need to elevate the Palestinian voices and really understand the struggle of what's happening. And a lot of people, majority of which are Jewish people, because they're the ones who have freedom of movement the most, who have visited occupied Palestine or who have visited before the blockade, have talked about the horrendous circumstances they live and how they were in this bubble where it's like, oh, the only democracy in the Middle East, beautiful, you know, vacation destination, beautiful beaches, beautiful, amazing food, blah, 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 all that great stuff, you know, that really is appealing to the Western world. But they're like, if any Zionist would go and live there or just visit for a couple of weeks and not come out a different person, that's like virtually impossible. That, that means like you're a psychopath. There's something wrong with you. Like you cannot walk in and see the things that they've seen and be okay with it. It's, it, it's just the dehumanization, the humiliation, the trying to strip us of our dignity. It's just next level, you know? And it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting trying to, justify like explain to people why you deserve to live it's basically that bottom line Hmm. and i just keep reflecting of all the privilege as a person with diabetes living in a place where i have access to all that you know it's like i don't like my endocrinologist or he i don't i don't know he doesn't believe that dairy is going to raise my blood sugar i'm going to go find another endocrinologist well, reality check, you know, Gaza, there are no endocrinologists or they don't have access to the information we have. Like, Eritrea, you've seen the conversation. Like, some of the, the things that we consider basic resources and basic information that we just know in the diabetes community, a lot of them don't have access to that from their healthcare providers. Yes, some have access to it from like social media and from us, the link to the outside world which is also somewhat sometimes controlled by the Israeli government. But like, imagine the level of care or how are you able to manage your diabetes under those circumstances? And it's not an equal fight, you know? It's like, oh, both sides. No, don't tell me both sides. When we t- talk about the, the Israeli side, they have the leading technology in healthcare. Yeah, and they have some of the, most advanced technologies and advancements when it does come to diabetes as well. And they have universal healthcare, which is another topic that we need to ask ourselves as, as people living in America. I'm not an American, but I live and I pay taxes. But as, as Americans living in America is 
we don't have access to healthcare, one, to universal healthcare. One in four people who have diabetes are rationing their insulin because they can't afford their insulin. Yet we continue to pay $3.8 billion every year to fund this war, to fuel their economy. What about our economy? What about our people? People who have no access to insulin, to basic healthcare. And this is just in the healthcare realm. Not to talk about the, the homeless people who have no, like the, most of the reason why they end up on the streets is because a lot of them are war veterans and have no access to mental health resources or people who live in horrible like socioeconomic situations due to underserved communities, due to the systems failing them. Why is this happening in the world, quote unquote, world power country of the world, you know? What aren't aren't the American people more justified in that three point eight billion dollar every year? That's our tax money. We pay that money. We need we should be voicing our opinion, telling them that we want that money. Why are people like people are dying because they can't afford whether it's chemo, whether it's insulin, whether it's anything, you know, that shouldn't be happening, especially not in America. Yeah, when I read, when I read, you know, stats about, you know, one in three Americans don't have $500 saved one in, and then I'm like, okay, well, one in three Americans live with diabetes. So what's going to happen if they lose their job or if they get in a car wreck, like they've got to decide between insulin or, and even if they get insulin, then it's pump supplies or syringes or test strips uh, and the cost of diabetes in general. And, you know, what if they have to decide between their kids eating lunch for the week and them living in, in their medical supplies? Like those are, those are decisions that people are, are, are forced to make. These are important conversations to have. We, we represent people with diabetes. We, and I, you know, I, I think about all the time, people in other countries that we don't hear about, people in China, people in North Korea who live with diabetes. I know that there, I mean, the, the people in India who we don't know, you know, how many people live in India with diabetes at this point. And the people in Palestine and people in Gaza are no different. And uh, I think, you know, for us, we got to continue to tell those stories. We got to continue to speak truth to power, uh, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it means uh, that people get upset, because I think that's what advocating for human rights is all about. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really um, something Nor said that was like, just because other people are struggling doesn't really minimize, minimize your struggle. It's important to just, you know, kind of remain grateful. She was talking about how we're kind of in the same group and we see the same conversations. Like the people she's talking about are friends with both of us. So yeah. something I recently did just to be grateful was like, I went to the gym because one of my friends who lives in Gaza, like, and you know him, like he loves going to the gym. It's his thing, but right now he can't go safely because of everything that's going on. And so like, I went to the gym and I like, I felt that I honored him that day. And every time that I go now, I'm like, I'm doing this because I have the privilege of being able to. So it's just, I think it's important in our daily lives to just like acknowledge our struggle, but also acknowledge where we don't have a struggle, where we are super lucky to have what we need and to just definitely like keep that type of outlook because it can yeah. be the worst. I feel lucky. I don't feel proud. I feel lucky to be live here. I don't feel yeah. super proud. It's tough. I think I was also... I feel lucky to live here because I, and I say this in our group, nor knows, but like 
you can't just have a big mouth for a fun time. Like you gotta, you gotta use that American citizenship when you can, homie. Use that privilege to open that big old mouth of yours, that Republican, Democrat mouth, whatever, and speak up for people who can't speak up for themselves. Speak up for people who do live in open air prisons or even in countries like Kuwait where you're not, or in places like Kuwait where you're not even allowed to talk about this at all. Yeah, like you're a not lot of places to- like that. Yeah, yeah. So welcome freedom, back. Freedom of speech. And I think something <laughs> that sorry. something that I heard early on a couple of weeks ago was like, especially in, you know, in the Middle East and in a lot of places that we've talked about democracy as we know it is hard to come by and Absolutely. You know, free speech and those, those types of rights that we enjoy here in America, many people in Palestine and elsewhere don't enjoy those and don't have those rights. And so we are very privileged. Nor we were just saying what we were thanking you for coming on the show today and for, for sharing oh, you. your story and for, for shining light on so many important issues. But yeah, we, uh, you know, again, can't, can't thank you enough for coming on and being so vulnerable and for sharing your, your knowledge. And you know, we, where can people find you? Plug yourself. Let's let people reach out to you on, online. Where, where, where can we direct them? That's a very good question. I'm on Instagram. That's like my most active platform. But in all honesty, there's not a lot of diabetes content on my Instagram. It's a lot of social justice work. I volunteer a lot, well, in the diabetes space and also with underserved vulnerable populations. So a lot of my content is that. And then my kids, Eritrea, do you have my handle? I'll I'll put you in the show notes for sure. We'll Tagger in the show notes. I'm so grateful to you. I just want to say Nora is the person who taught me to open up about my stories, my things. She's an inspiration to me, a light to us all. And I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for telling us your story. I love you. And thanks for taking the thank extra time. So this was a long much. episode and we, but I, you know, every, at every step was riveting. So thank you. Thank you both. Like I really, I really admire your courage and also for being teachable, you know, that's also a huge step. And I really appreciate that. 